and making a difference every day. Welcome to the Animal Care and Welfare podcast, iBuzz, where we combine the science and practice of animal welfare in a fun and engaging way, where we answer questions, find solutions, discuss tools, and achieve results, all for happy animals and people. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this podcast is brought to you by Animal Concepts, and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Membership Experience. Let's buzz. Okay, welcome, welcome. I'm here with the podcast with Dr. Heather Hill, who's professor at the Department of Psychology and also editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Comparative Psychology. And Heather is working at St. Mary's University. Welcome, Heather. Hi, Sabrina. So Glad to be here today. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us. So excited. We met um, at in Barcelona like yes. a few months ago only. So um, yeah, so that was a really great marine mammal meeting and we had so many great conversations. So I can't wait to hear more about all the work you're doing and, and the amazing animals that you're working with, which are very close to our hearts because we love the marine mammals, right? Yes, most definitely. I think I think my conversation with you was one of my absolute favorites of the entire conference. So, and I think we could have just talked the entire time, which probably wasn't would have been fun, but maybe not what we were there for the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely for me as well. I'm so glad we had time to talk and we wrote down so many notes and have so many ideas about writing and research. So, yeah, looking forward to that. So, absolutely. So, Maybe, you know, for the listeners, you can introduce yourself a little bit, what you're working on and all the research and, and all the passions that you have for marine mammals. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of my absolute th favorite things to talk about all the time uh, when I can. And, you know, it's, it's always funny as a, as a psychologist, you're coming at it from a comparative perspective. A lot of folks, in, at least in my university and probably in a number of universities, sometimes aren't really familiar with that term. And so it's sort of my mission to, to somehow um, get in the idea that animals are pretty amazing, no matter what kind of animal you're working with. But of course, marine mammals are, are my absolute favorite and have, have been my favorite for a really long time. So um, it's, it's always fun to weave through any kind of animal experience or any kind of animal information in any class that I, I choose to teach. And they range everything from a statistics class all the way you know, up into comparative psychology, but development and learning and all these other fun things. So many of my students are trying to figure out you know, what they wanna do and they all wanna work with people and, and people are great. Animals and people are even better. And, and as far as I'm concerned, animals are the best. But <laughs> when, when we think about uh, you know, sort of what my goals are is you know, I want, to make sure that students are, and, and people in general, are aware that uh, animals are in their world and they have a number of purposes and functions um, and that we need to be aware of them at, at all levels. And so, you know, I've, I've spent the last 20 something years uh, focused primarily on marine mammals and in particular marine mammals and human care. And I, I decided that very, very early when I was going through as an undergraduate, you know, I just, I had thought it might be fun to um, use animals in therapy with, with, with kids in particular. And that was something that had started making some progress, but hadn't really gotten off the ground like it has today. And, and I had this pipe dream of, you know, specifically wanted to use dolphins. And so dolphins were pretty fascinating to me. And as I was going through my undergrad career, you know, I was stuck in the, not quite the middle of Texas, but pretty close in the middle of Texas, which is landlocked. And the closest place to a marine mammal was uh, through an oceanographer uh, who was a physical oceanographer. And he uh, studied the currents in the Gulf of Mexico. And so uh, that was my 
one opportunity as an undergraduate to kind of get down into the Gulf and, and see the ocean currents or the, the currents within the Gulf, but not actually see some animals. So it was, it was kind of a long road to try to get to, to study the marine mammals, but I had opportunities in particular, the idea of working with animals in human care was really, really important to me because we'd spent you know, quite a bit of the early research looking at animals in their natural habitat, in particular marine mammals. And so we knew their distributions in a lot of areas that were studied and obviously that has uh, improved and increased uh, dramatically over all the years that it's been. But for me, it was important to know what could we do to help the animals? What could we learn um, from the animals that were in our care? And, and that has been kind of a guiding principle through my entire uh, 20 plus year history looking at bottlenose dolphins, belugas, killer whales, sea lions, um, in particular, the ones that I've worked with mostly. Fantastic, that, that's, that sounds amazing. Can you say a little bit about more about, um, well, oh, you also used a word that I had never heard before, a pipe dream. What does that uh -huh. mean for those of us that are not native English speakers? Because it sounds oh. like, yeah. Fun, I like, I like that. So pipe dream being a, kind of a, a, a fantasy dream, uh, something that's, that's really you know, sort of far-fetched and out, out in the universe. Uh, and, and something that's hard to achieve. Wow, yes, yeah. Well, working with marine mammals is a fantasy, it's a dream of so many, right, that you have mm -hmm. achieved because you've been studying them and been around them for more than 20 years. That's really incredible. And, and of course, you know, you've also made it a reality. And so can you say, tell us more about, you know, what type of research do you do? And also, why do you want to do that type of research? What drives you to do certain types of research? Absolutely. So, um, wow, I, I love, I love kids. I love young animals. Uh, they, they make me happy when they play and interact. And, and from the very get-go, um, one of the things that I found extremely curious was the interaction between mothers and their offspring. And, and that, uh, and so how, how the uh, maternal care was given and ultimately how did that affect the development of calves in particular with bottlenose dolphins was something that was extremely interesting to me. And so it sort of started the, the process of taking um, a look at uh, longitudinal research and coming at it from a developmental perspective, which is uh, something that I very, you know, find near and dear to my heart. Um, understanding the fact that uh, behavior unfolds over time, it's influenced by so many different factors. That, that I felt was one of the key things that was missing at the time. We, we had some knowledge of maternal care and calf development within bottlenose dolphins in the early 90s um, that had been, you know, just really starting in its infancy the, the decade before, you know, in the 80s and things. And we were figuring out, you know, really how breeding could work well with bottlenose dolphins um, around that point, but we really just didn't understand a whole lot about calf development. We really didn't understand the maternal care side of the house. I think people were still more along the lines of, of thinking of it as an innate behavior, not so much as something that uh, you know had some aspects of learning involved. And so that was one of the, one of the key areas that was just absolutely fascinating to me. And then at the same time, because of working with animals in human care, the cognitive side of the house was also super interesting to me. I, I really wanted to understand how they could solve problems. I uh, was absolutely fortunate to land, uh, completely lucky really to land with Dr. Stan Kuchai, um, who is, today is a, a, a memory of, of him and um, on National Dolphin Day, of course. And, and when, when I think about uh, his knowledge, the, the interaction that I had with him when I was deciding where to go for graduate school, he was doing, he was starting a new program at the University of Southern Mississippi when I was looking for a graduate program. And it was what I had always envisioned I had wanted to do, to be able to understand the communication system of dolphins. And in particular, to see it as it was developing over time and how it was utilized between moms and calves. 
And um, through a couple of memories, which maybe share a little bit later, the the interactions that I had with him, you know, I knew right then that that's that's what I wanted to to focus on. But the cognitive side of the house was really influenced by Stan's background in Piaget and understanding that you know, children, human children are scientists. They, they want to reach out and discover the world and they, you know, test this and test that. And through their experiences, they really are kind of investigating and learning about different aspects of the world. And, and his, his passion for that really, you know, I had a passion for that going through college, but it never really had a chance to become, you know, to blossom until my interactions with him. And so we really spent quite a bit of time looking at cognitive development with the dolphins and the sea lions that we were, were working with, um, with the program that we were, the facility that we were working with in Mississippi. And that really kind of guided all of my research from that point at the beginning of graduate school to what I do now. And, and I really try to, to intersperse cognitive research with behavioral research, always with the goal to understand how can these behaviors develop over time under different circumstances, um, whether it's how mom cares for the calf in terms of a maternal style, whether it's a personality from the calf perspective and, and an individual difference specifically, um, is it the availability of young calves that are present um, that makes a huge difference for other calves and their development, but even the importance of calves within a social grouping for, um, for, for dolphins in particular, but sea lions as well. When you start thinking about the presence of young animals, it, it makes a difference. And, and so I think, you know, in terms of the research that topics that I've focused on over the years, they've really been driven by questions that a developmentalist um, who's interested in Piaget would be you know, curious about. They were driven by you know, Stan's interest and his curiosity about play and his curiosity about communication and his curiosity about how, um, how things kind of worked. And I came in with my developmental spin that said, okay, let's look at this from birth and see how far we can take it. It's absolutely fascinating. And it, I mean, clearly you have been very inspired by Stan, Stan's work. I've met Stan only a few times and I've always been inspired by his writing, his research and him as a human being. Uh, he was just a lovely, lovely person. And I think what you also alluded to, which is really important, I think you talked about researching animals in their natural habitat, but also in in different facilities under human care. And, yeah. you know, really looking at that de developmental and the different aspects of their lives and play and individual personality differences. And that points to this importance of marine mammal research under human care, right? Yeah. And yeah. can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how you work and with who perhaps you're working together and in what ways are you doing this to really get a better understanding of that aspect? And then perhaps also how can it help us, you know, thinking about animals um, in the wild? Great, great, yeah, great question. So, you know, for, first of all, the importance of doing research with animals and human care is we, we need to understand, you know, what their capabilities are to some, to some degree as best as we can with certain circumstances. And one of, you know, one of the things that I've discovered over the 20 years is that you have to have a mix of cognitive research and, you know, we can't, although we're in human care, it seems somewhat like a laboratory. It's not, you don't have full control over all aspects that you wish you did. Um, many of the facilities that I work with are, are, have, you know, multiple responsibilities, multiple roles in order to be able to stay open and be able to educate the public and, and entertain the public to, you know, to, to keep them coming back, to keep showing them just how cool any animal is, but how really cool marine mammals are and, and making that connection with the individual animals so that then they can take it out to the, the natural habitat and hopefully, you know, strike a, some sort of, cord or, or be able 
people to, to motivate them and energize them to, to do more for the animals in their natural habitat. But we can't really, you know, we can't take care of the animals in our care unless we know what they're able to do. And, and that's not just, you know, their physiology and their anatomy and um, their health, although those are super uh, incredibly important components. But we also need to look at the social side. We need to look at their cognitive attributes. We need to understand, you know, from the perspective of if they're going to be solving various problems in the wild and those problems are of a particular nature with, you know, the bulk of their time uh, either socializing or foraging um, with probably more time foraging than potentially socializing depending on the species. We need to understand those things. We need to know how they do socialize, you know, what sorts of groups are they found in their natural habitat and and understand what happens when you mix those things up, when you switch them around, when you create some variability within human care. So I think it's important that we do research on both sides, that we, we've got to look at not just what they're doing in human care to make sure that we are providing them with the, the best welfare possible, the best supportive environment possible that uh, allows them to uh, achieve the, the um, you know, what the, the best experience that they're going to have with the lives that they have with, with their humans. Uh, but we also want to know what does that mean for those animals in, in the natural habitat uh, with the recognition that the natural habitat should also provide us with information about how we should care for the animals in, in human care. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the best examples that I'm, I'm so you know, proud to be a part of is, um, you know, I, I have spent the last almost 15 years now uh, working with the SeaWorld San Antonio primarily and their beluga population. And uh, they were gracious enough to allow me to come on in and, and keep going with the research that I had started with the marine, with the bottlenose dolphins looking at um, mother calf interactions over from birth till whatever time frame that we could watch them that I had begun in Mississippi and then was able to continue out with the Navy Marine Mammal Program out in San Diego, California. And uh, SeaWorld said, well, we don't know much about belugas. Let's, you want to try it with belugas? And I was like, sure, why not? You know, but the importance of cross-species comparison is, is critical in understanding what a bottlenose dolphin does versus what a beluga does versus what a killer whale does versus what a Pacific white-sided dolphin does. Um, same thing for sea lions and seals, if you want to, you know, start thinking about a different uh, type of marine mammal. And so looking at um, the belugas, the work that we were able to begin, and it, and it wasn't always easy because it was behavioral. Um, I found with the fact that these facilities, to finish that thought, the, the fact that these facilities have so many other responsibilities, performing cognitive research experiments is very difficult to do. Uh, unless you can incorporate it into their normal everyday experience, unless it can involve minimal training. If you can create, and that was one of the things that was really amazing about Stan, was he was so innovative with the types of studies that he was able to create that they often seamlessly were added to the daily routine of, of the individual facilities that he worked with. And, and that was something that, you know, I took away from, you know, it's great to do experimental research under controlled circumstances, but sometimes you, you can't access that, but you can approximate it, you can simulate it, and you can still walk away with some pretty critical information um, that can then maybe be taken by a different facility who does have the ability to focus on more uh, controlled types of experiments to be able to, to take that knowledge a little bit farther. And so, you know, I had decided that observational research was going to be my key um, way of being able to integrate the students that I work with um, because they don't have a lot of skill sets and working in a laboratory was not um, part of the marine mammal. I don't have it often in my own laboratory. I, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to ask, you know, SeaWorld because it's close by uh, and they have animals to, to help us create a, a world laboratory, a, a, a naturalistic kind of laboratory. And so with that importance of, of being able to recognize that if you can run cognitive studies in an environment that has a lot of other responsibilities, awesome. We know that they're enriching. We know that they are um, 
interesting to uh, some animals, but not to all animals. But that's part of that's part of the variability that you you come across. And if we can structure an experiment or a study well enough that we can simulate what they might see in a natural habitat, then that gives us a chance to generalize. So this opportunity to do research at a facility like SeaWorld opened up a ton of doors. And we started off easy. We started off with observational research, just being able to look at what, what do beluga calves do when they're born? And what do beluga mothers do when they have a beluga calf? And just follow that as far as we could using the model that we had created with the bottlenose dolphins. And from that experience, and, and, and there were a few rough years because trying to explain to folks who are um, very concrete and scientifically minded about experimentation, observational research is often not valued by uh, other areas, other disciplines, but it's critical because you've got to have the, the both pieces. You've got to have what do things do in their normal environment and, and no manipulation and what do they do under manipulation? And then you hope that the answers converge and you get the same information. And so the, you know, kind of the proudest moment I was able to engage after, you know, 12 years of research on beluga calves and, and their mothers within this population in San Antonio was the ability to be able to inform a situation with a stranded calf, um, Tyunik, who stranded up in Alaska as pretty much a, a four-week-old. They were, you know, first successful rehabilitated calf, um, beluga calf, and he was cared for 24 hours a day, every single day of the week. And what was beautiful about that was it was a collaborative effort across so many facilities within North America and around the world, really, and bringing in experts who had knowledge of belugas and who had physiological knowledge, endocrinological knowledge, um, you know, issue experience with calves and new newborns and neonate and understanding what happens to them if their mother does reject them or they are separated from their mother. And so that collaboration, you know, enabled Tyunik to survive. And through a, a series of talks, the uh, you know, United States government had to make a decision, is this calf who at the time now was, you know, eight months old roughly, is he able to be re-released back into the Cook Inlet, which is a you know highly endangered population, and they're doing everything they can to keep that population of Cook Inlet belugas alive and around. And and the you know the the questions that they asked about you know being able to be to find a surrogate mother to you know what does a one-year-old calf do? What does a one-year-old calf need uh, behaviorally, physiologically, nutritionally? Um, all of those things were very difficult for the researchers who'd been doing the work in the natural habitat for so long. They couldn't answer those questions. They didn't have enough observations to, to know what to say. Most of their observations were at the surface. They didn't have access to that underwater experience that we did at, at a facility like uh, San Antonio, uh, like SeaWorld. And that was probably the coolest experience of my entire professional history so far was to just to be able to say this is what we know and what we know from San Antonio is not special. It is consistently observed across other facilities that have also had beluga calves. So what we know about our belugas in human care is happening across all facilities and what we know based on research that has been conducted on beluga calves and in, in the natural habitat whether it's in russia or in alaska or in canada is that they're doing the same things when you have those opportunities to see the the behaviors in the wild they are mapping onto the same behaviors that we see every single day in uh, natural and in, in human care and so i think that was probably a really, for me, it was like the best example ever to be able to say, look, there has to be a marriage between research performed with animals in their natural habitat and understanding what animals in human care are doing and what they can do and what we need to do um, to make sure that we ensure that they have the best lives possible. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> 
that's <laughs> that is just fantastic yeah with great great stories great examples and such a great example about how important like you said that marriage how you know all these different disciplines working together from you know working in human care people studying animals in the wild it's really amazing I'm so glad you shared this story. That's, that is such Thank a good you. example. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, you have talked about so many different things and the thread also through it is about individuals. You know, what mm -hmm. do we see of the individuals? And you talked about play and personality and of course how behaviors develop and how that can be different for different animals. So you must have a lot of different and fun stories about especially mothering calves that you could oh, probably yeah. share with us. That, that would be really <laughs> fun to hear, like, you know, this animal versus that animal or, you know, or the same mother with different calves, you know, it would be really yeah. fun to hear some, some nice uh, mother calf stories. So those, those are obviously some of my favorites and um, I have a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think I, I want to start, um, it, it, one, of, one of my, you know, absolute favorite memories uh, is a, a set of bottlenose dolphins out in uh, San Diego at the Navy. And the Navy has this really, really cool uh, breeding lagoon. They, 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 they had their typical, um, you know, struck their pens that they created, um, which are, you know, lovely and they go with the tide and they move in and out, but they had created this giant lagoon for um, moms and calves. And my, my favorite story when I was out there, um, they had a, a, there's a very large um, Pacific bottlenose dolphin named Popolo. That was her, uh, she, she was beautiful. She's beautiful and big. Pacific bottlenose dolphins are, are darker and bigger than Atlantic bottlenose dolphins. And um, the calves really loved her. And so she was, uh, she hadn't had her first calf yet. And uh, she would, uh, because she was so huge, she'd make a, this huge wake for the calves. And so she would steal them. She would swim by a mom calf pair, um, you know, whether the calf was a, a month old or a year old. And she would swoop through and just pull the calf away with her wake. And then they would just, the calf would just surf all along as she would swim rapidly around the, the lagoon. And, and what was always curious for me, obviously, because, you know, it was about the moms and, you know, what, what moms would allow that and what moms would not allow that in terms of their, their preferences, whether it's a maternal style or an individual differences. But it, it does seem to be pretty consistent across their various offspring from what we've looked at so far. So I'd say it's a maternal style and, and it was, it always cracked me up because one of the moms was like, absolutely not. You will not steal my baby. I am going to come, come get, come get her back and, and swim with her and she will not be able to leave my side for quite some time. And then you'd have another female who was like, yeah, fine, go have fun. You know, that no, no problem. Keep, keep the calf for a little while. I'll, I'll hang out over here in the corner. And, you know, and it was just, it's little, little things like that, that just, you know, were fascinating to, to see, see what happened. Um, another example is probably, you know, we're not supposed to have favorites, but we do. Yes, um, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> so there, there, there's a, there's a beluga named Chrissy in San Antonio. And from, you know, and one of the things that I, I have definitely appreciated more and more over the years, and, and you can probably identify with this, Sabrina, is the different interactions that trainers have with the animals are one arena for animals and human care. And then what the animals do on their own time spontaneously is oftentimes completely different. Um, and so Chrissy is a she's a challenge to work with as, as a trainer um, is concerned because she seems to be a pretty intelligent animal and she, she is uh, demanding, let's say, uh, from what, what trainers have shared in terms of their stories. But she is an amazing mom. And um, up to this point when I had first started watching the Belugas, 
I had watched uh, two females. I actually watched three female belugas my very first uh, for three years that I was I was watching uh, the belugas when I first got started in San Antonio. And all I could say was belugas are terrible mothers. They're awful. They let their calves wander. They never go pick them up. Because I'm used to thinking of a bottlenose dolphin, and this is one of the you know really important pieces about cross-species comparisons, is that bottlenose dolphins, man, if your calf uh, is wandering, they are right on top of them. The, the moms go pick those calves up pretty much within you know um, 30 seconds of them wandering off. And while they allow them some distance, that those first six months really are are for m most mothers, the bottlenose dolphin calves have to stay right next to them. But the beluga moms were like all over the place they could have been you know hundreds of feet away and and the calf is like whatever and and what was really funny about that is when i was sharing this experience with one of the researchers up in cook inlet and i i was asking her i said what are your moms like when you've observed uh the mother the belugas up in cook inlet she said they're terrible she's like they're like teenage moms they let their calves wander <laughs> and she said she was so funny because she she even had like a name a nickname for one of the the moms and and one of the belugas up there in cook inlet and and i said you know what though i said i think it's just belugas for whatever reason belugas have more tolerance to letting their you know to having their calves wander off and be away from them for longer periods and at farther distances than bottlenose dolphins do and apparently what killer whales uh, do. So that was, so, so anyway, that was kind of a fun story. So here we are, you know, three years into this longitudinal study of looking at uh, beluga mothers and calves and here comes Chrissy. And up to this point, the other moms that I had been watching, totally lackadaisical. They let their calves wander. They had lots of distance. They didn't really go, you know, intervene for them in any situation that, you know, if I'd been watching bottlenose dolphins, mom would have been right there. Um, and Chrissy comes along with her calf, Bella. She was the, the first calf that I was able to watch with Chrissy. And Chrissy was the most protective beluga I have ever seen. She was right up there with the bottlenose dolphins. She made sure her calves were always with her. She knew exactly what they were doing. She always followed them. But what was really cool, and I think probably my, my most favorite part of all this, is that Chrissy really liked to play with her calves. She, um, and, and she still has them and, and it's just fun to watch them grow up and she's, you know, mom to her first male calf right now who's um, two or going on three, I guess. And, um, and she is one of those moms that's just like, you wanna play with that? Sure, let's play with it. And she, she really, and this is really where, you know, kind of the importance of, of of care and development is she scaffolds her calves so she'll you know she lets them play keeps an eye on them but if a toy gets you know too far up there and the calf is struggling to get it she'll pull the toy down but she doesn't pull it all the way down she'll pull it down just enough to allow the calf to go you know start playing with it again um, she engages in all kinds of play behaviors with them uh, socializes with them and so it's just, you know, one of my really favorite memories. And so I think because of that, her calves are really, really cool. They are inquisitive, they're curious, they, they are very energetic. They are just like their moms in training, <laughs> who can be quite a challenge when it comes to, to the training side of the house. But man, they are, they are super smart. It sounds amazing. This is so, I, I love all the details in your story, all the you know, you're, you're pointing to so many different things because of course, you know, she pulls it down, but not all the way. She pulls it down far enough so she understands, you know, the insight that she has in what can my calf, what is he or she capable of? And, yep. you know, this, I mean, there's so many things in there that are absolutely fascinating. Like, yeah, I can totally see why you want to study, um, you know, belugas, I think. I mean, when I met you, you had were wearing you know these <laughs> these pants <laughs> with belugas on them and you know like everything was beluga beluga so of course you have worked on many different marine mammals and i'm so glad that you're also highlighting you know the, the seals sea lions pinnipeds others because sometimes we you know we have a lot of focus on 
on killer yep. whales or belugas or dolphins. So the importance, like you say, of looking, you know, different species. But, you know, when I think of you, I think of belugas. And of course, you know, your <laughs> photo uh, that also comes with the podcast is all about belugas. And, and so, like, if you could be an animal for a day, you know, who would you want to be and why is it, do I assume it's going to be the beluga or who no, is it going to be? Know, that, no? that, was, that was a really, that was actually, that's a really tough question because I, I really thought a lot about that. I mean, obviously the, the, the obvious answer, I, it wouldn't actually be a beluga, I'd be a dolphin. Um, <laughs> but I actually think I would rather be a, a, and this is weird, a goat. I mean, I, I went through, you know, dolphins and you know killer whales and and sea lions and and thought about a horse and I thought about a bird and you know it's pretty cool you know as a bird you can fly and soar in the wind and you can do the same thing in the water whether you're you know a marine mammal but I decided goats I, I would like to be a goat and <laughs> and the reason the reason I would like to be a goat for a day is it kind of pulls it all kind of pulls everything that I love to watch in any animal together. They're, they're playful. They like to climb um, on the craziest places. They go into trees, they'll climb onto you know, mountains and you find them in a place that you're like, how, how is that possible? They'll sit on a motorcycle in India and um, hang out and ride a motorcycle with not just one, but four of them. Um, all at the same time because they have this incredible balance, I guess. But they also are great moms. They are social animals. They, uh, you know, like appear to play pretty frequently. And and you know, some of my all-time favorite videos <laughs> are the goats on their balancing act with you know various ladders and and seesaws and other sorts of things. Um, yes, and those metal things, those wobbly yes. things. That they can stand on, it's amazing, yeah. Isn't it crazy? So, so I think I've decided the goat. A, a goat is really, you know, what I should be. All right. <laughs> well, goat it is. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. So, actually, you know, there is this, there is this um, Nobel Prize, right? It's for, like, the improbable research. It's the yeah. IG Nobel Prize. And... Um, you know, maybe one day you you will actually get that prize. And and what would it be for? Like, would it have to do anything with goats then? No, no. I'm sure. Oh. I'm sure it would have to be with belugas. Okay. <laughs> so, I'm sure. I'm sure it would have to be some some yeah some really random thing about the belugas. I I thought I was close though. There was there was one one time I you know one of the one of the papers that I produced. Um, was about uh, <laughs> bubble burst, which doesn't seem like a really amazing, crazy thing, but it, it was kind of random. And the, there was a lot of pushback about the importance of bubble bursts. And so I, I feel like there will be something in a display that is completely ignoble and will that will have some sort of random body display that I'm sure will be coming out pretty, you know, some, someday soon. And it will involve lots of male erections. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bubble burst, male erections. Well, we'll keep an eye out on the website of Improbable, okay. <laughs> you know, on the ignoble prizes and see whether you're going to show up sometime. Yeah. So this has been fascinating. I mean, really, <laughs> such great stories. And and of course, one of the you you already you have spoken about him many times already. And and at the beginning, you said you know some memories. You have had the privilege and absolute pleasure of of studying and learning and and being with Stan and around him. And you know, I I would love to hear if you are willing to share a beautiful memory of you and Stan because he was such a fantastic person. Yep, I gotta gather myself real quick. <laughs> um, Stan, you know, as a mentor, and I know pretty much almost every person that he, he whose life he touched would probably say the same thing. He cared for his students. He um, he had an amazing sense of humor. 
and he had such this quest for life. And one of my very favorite experiences that will always stay with me is I, you know, I was, I was very fortunate because, because I was his first graduate student when he was establishing the, the Marine Mammal Program in Mississippi. I had him to myself for two and a half years. And um, I don't, you know, not many people can say that about their mentors, that they get them all by themselves with their sole, you know, attention on them. And the thing that I value the most and that I miss is being able to call him up and just share with him questions and concerns. And it didn't matter if it was stupid. It didn't matter if it was the smartest thing ever. Um, and he was just a good listener. And he, he really, you know, paid attention to what, what you were saying. And then, and then he, you know, gently tell you things like, you know, don't be stupid, Heather. And, uh, you know, you're going to be fine. And here, here's where we're headed. And, and he just, you know, he was a very kind person. And I, I miss those times that, you know, we would drive an hour and a half one way to get to the facility um, on the coast where we were doing our research. And, and I had him to myself for an hour and a half in both directions. And we just talked about anything and everything. And and I think that was, you know, that's probably one of my very, very favorite memories. I mean, he, he, you know, he told lots of jokes. He always had a really great way of, of talking about things and, and thinking about things. And I know lots of people have lots of, you know, memories of him. But for me, I think the most important one was just the fact that he, you know, took the time and was willing to, to you know, help me become the person I am and to encourage me. And, and he didn't just leave it once I graduated it was a constant and continued relationship. And I, and I really appreciate that and I miss it. Thank you so much for sharing these beautiful, yeah, really beautiful memories. And, and uh, to me, I've, I've only met him a few times. And, and like you say, you just a beautiful conversations and, and, and his laugh and humor and, and how it, he made you feel. And, and yep. that is, I, I hear and feel that so much in how, the way you speak about him and what you shared. And, and yeah, that is really beautiful. Thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. So, and of course he was so instrumental to many of the things that you have done and that you're still doing today and still inspired by him, whether it's the mother and calves and the play and everything else that you're really engaged in. Yes. I guess yep. one of my questions to you would then be like, if you could make a change for animals, you know, small or big, it doesn't matter. But if it's about what is it that you hope that you could, in what, in what way could you make a change for animals? What would that be for you? I think two, two things for that for me. Um, for animals and human care, I think we need to do the best job that we can to create the best kind of social structure and environment that they would normally find if they were in their natural habitat. I think that the social structures are, are key in making sure that they're given the opportunities to interact with uh, different individuals, uh, different, uh, different there are different constraints, there are different types of interactions they're gonna have with different aged individuals with different uh, members of their group, particularly if it's a social uh, species. If you're working with a species that's not so uh, social, then understanding what are their needs in terms of uh, uh, co cognitive uh, support, what are their needs in social support, what are their needs in terms of the habitat that they're around. So I think you know, one, one piece for me is, is really the social setting that, that's provided um, properly. And to ensure, you know, knowing what that knowledge is, I mean, that, that obviously is gonna take some trial and error in, in some ways, um, as we've discovered with many species that are in human care, but it also takes, it, it's also important for us to be, you know, looking at that in the natural habitat and doing our best to understand who, who goes together, who, who you know, moves around, who interacts, how do they interact? And so I think we, we need to keep that dialogue open between both settings. 
And then the other, the other thing that I think is really, really important, and I know this has to be thought about uh, very carefully, and um, we have to be able to consider the other constraints involved, but the importance of young animals, um, and this is something that Stan spoke of constantly, and I 100% and I, um, agree with. The importance of young animals in, for any species, um, particularly if they have any kind of offspring care, is really, really critical. And so when, when we have animals in our care and we are um, you know, housing them, whether they're a geriatric population or a middle-aged population or a young population, that we need to still be considerate of the breeding needs and the importance of young um, in species-appropriate ways. Because uh, I think, you know, I think one of the neatest studies, and <laughs> I can remember sharing this with Stan, we were putting together one of our, our issues on welfare for the uh, International Journal of Comparative Psychology. And he was leading it at the time and he was like, Heather, we're putting together this, this issue. I think it was in 2010 actually, is when we finally got it out. And, and he said, you know, what can you do with belugas? What, what, what component do you wanna look at? And I was like, well, okay, let's look at this. Well, let's see what happens when we have, we had all this data that we just collected from, the, from our normal data collection. And we had a variety of different social groupings. We had social groupings with all adult belugas. We had social groupings with mixed adult, uh, mixed ages, um, all calves, all moms and calves. And then we had all kinds of data that we had been collecting for at that point, uh, three years and, and hundreds of hours of data. And so um, I can remember we got through, we got to the end, we looked at the results and I said, holy cow, this is the best. I mean, my studies never come out the way I expect them to do. <laughs> and, and here it was. I mean, it was legitimate evidence that said, you know what, when younger animals are present, even with the older animals, the older animals respond. And it's not that they're interacting more with the younger animals, they just do different things. And they don't get caught up in a, in a swim pattern that they stay in because there's nothing else to engage in at that particular point. But the sheer presence of a younger animal doing silly stuff, whether it's playing with a ball or swimming fast or just cutting in and out of the area really made a huge difference. And it wasn't, it, and it really wasn't, I mean, cause we actually looked at the influence of, of the size, you know, access to pools. Like, was it because of just one pool or three pools or four pools? I mean, we looked at that information and, and the, pool, the number of pools available didn't matter. What mattered was the social grouping had younger animals in it. And whether there was an EED present or not, it didn't matter. It was all about the importance of having younger animals that were more active and energetic. And it, it had the older animals doing different things. And to me, that I think is those two things, the social structure and the importance of young are probably the two things that we need to keep working on for animals in our care. Wonderful. It's such a beautiful wrap also of everything that you have talked about throughout this whole podcast, you know, from the mother and the calf stories to the personalities to, you know, the influence of every you know, everybody within the group and on the group. And yes, and, and again, you know, so much inspired by Stan. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that is, that is just really great. I really like those two uh, conclusions. And also what I think is very interesting with regards to this is that you are, you have talked a lot about the animals. So, you know, of course you, you've talked about the, the trainers and the people, but most of what you have actually talked about is about what is life like for them and what does their life look like and who are they and how do they develop and all these different aspects. Uh, so independently from, of course, all the other aspects that, that we are, you know, engaged in, in mm -hmm. you know, whether it's conservation or research or education programs and recreation programs, all these you know, programs that we have um, in marine parks and, and zoos, wherever these marine mammals might be housed, but you have very much highlighted them as the animals. Uh, and how do you then also fit everything else around it? So how do we, you know, do the best that we can do? And how do we keep doing research 
to make sure that the animals that we have in human care are cared for in the best way possible. And, and that has been shining through for me and, and which I very much appreciate. Yay, because you know, yeah. the animals are the best. The people are important. <laughs> people, people are very important, but I think, I think it's the animals that we have to remember because they're the ones that make us smile. I mean, people make us smile, but the animals ultimately make us smile and they're the ones that say, you know, we need to do something more. We need to, to, to provide better lives potentially, but we need to do more with their, their life, those animals that are, that, you know, are in their natural habitats. So yeah, it's important. Yes, no, absolutely. And, and this whole, you know, application of if we, what we know through our research and years of work, how do we then take that information to make animal care and welfare programs uh, even better than they already are. So it's it's just such a beautiful interaction. So and then there's goats, of course. So that's the you know like who knew uh, you would choose goats? And I'm so delighted because I love goats as well. So and and I I could imagine that maybe at some point you might have some comparative study uh, going on between some goats nearby. Um, I'm sure. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, excellent. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on this podcast of sharing all your stories, your research, your beautiful memories with Stan, all the work, and, and of course, these great stories of, of the animals uh, that influence all your, you know, your research and work so much. So thank you so much for being on this podcast with us. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And anytime, it, it, it makes me happy to talk about what I love. Excellent. Well, I can't wait to hear more beluga and pinniped and goat stories. So, <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Heather. And until next time. Sounds Bye. good. Bye. Already the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Find us on your favorite platform and leave your comments and suggestions. Or go to the Animal Concepts website to send us your questions and feedback. We are so happy to answer them and address them in future podcasts. Animal Concepts is dedicated to helping you care for animals and yourself. Are you interested in quality animal care and welfare content, in actions and resources for you to be well while caring for animals? Then check out PAWS, the practical animal welfare science platform, which has webinars, science into practice case studies, private Facebook live sessions, and a lot of resources for you and the animals you care for. You can share your experiences and connect to animal care professionals and scientists from around the world. In the meantime, take care of you and the animals and keep buzzing.